reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brother Alan, will you come? Gracious Father, we bow in your holy presence today, and we are so thankful for the holy scriptures that we have before us. What an encouragement they are. Uh, They are there to sustain us, to strengthen us, to give us hope, and to direct our thoughts toward that which is in the future. We do appreciate what Christ has done for us, and we pray that even as we open the scriptures today and look at these things, that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would cause us to give glory to your name and that we might be strengthened in our earthly pilgrimage. We are weak, but you are mighty. Help us with the presence of your Holy Spirit today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's a very uh, wonderful passage of Scripture we have today. Brother Lars opened up this wonderful book of 1 Peter for us last week, and uh, uh, I found it most encouraging. In fact, I thought quite a bit this week about what he had to say. Uh, I was thinking about Peter's message here. Um, If you think about sort of the prominent New Testament writers, Peter writes to us a letter of hope. That's quite in contrast to Paul, who is more of a theologian, his focus seemed to be faith. doesn't mean he didn't cover these other topics, but if you look at his great epistle to the Romans and other books, you see that the focus is faith. John, his focus was love, but Peter, his focus is hope and how wonderful that is. Peter is a man that I can relate to and I hope that you can too. Uh, Peter was the man who stepped forward in power to speak at Pentecost, and I doubt that there's ever been a message that's been more effective in terms of conversions than that message at Pentecost. He developed into a man that had tremendous impact for God, and this was all done in spite of a man that I think you would agree with me was flawed, was impetuous. He, he, he tended to react quickly, sometimes spoke before he thought. And I can certainly relate to this man, Peter. But you know, Peter had some mountaintop experiences which I think are most encouraging. He was the first to acknowledge Christ as the Son of God. That's significant. He was first to step out of the boat to walk to Christ. The other disciples were there, but it was him that stepped out in faith. He threw himself into the water when The resurrected Christ was on the shore. You recall that when they went fishing? It was him that cast himself into the sea to get to the shore to actually greet Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And so 
I would suggest to you that Peter's devotion, in spite of failure, in spite of difficulties, his devotion cannot be questioned. He was a person that loved the Lord. And certainly, as we go through this book of Peter, I think you'll see how that shines forth in this epistle of hope. Now, the outline that you have in your bulletin, we'll go through that as accurately as we can. And uh, I would like to, first of all, speak about my first topic here. The first slide is Christian, bless the Lord. It says in our text, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's wonderful that Peter begins this section with an eruption of praise. We should do something because God has done something. We should praise him when we consider what he has done for us. Now, the word bless, we say blessed be the God. The word bless really is the word from which we get our word eulogize. Now, I don't know what you, but as soon as I saw that, I thought, well, eulogies are only at funerals. That's not true. <laughs> we can eulogize many things in life. Eulogize simply means to speak well of, to extol, exclaim, and to sing the praises of a particular thing. So it's totally appropriate in everyday language to eulogize the God of heaven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a Christian talking to another Christian one time, and he asked him this question, how can you best please the Lord? That is an interesting question. In fact, you may have to think a little bit because there may be many answers that come to your mind. The other Christian, after a pause, said to him, I have the answer for you. It's in Psalm 69, verse 30 and 31. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Very significant. The ox and the bull present the simple thought of service and sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that the Lord enjoys something more than our service? And what is that? It's praising his name with a song. So if you want to please the Lord, do what Peter tells us to do here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've tried to outline on this slide, he is certainly inherently worthy of our praise. We should joyfully acknowledge his supremacy. He is above, above and beyond all others. Now, the next slide is, why should we bless God? Well, specifically, too, I looked this up relative to passages that refer to God the Father. And it's interesting that these four that I've outlined on this slide, in 1 John 4 and 14, it says this, and we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So that's number one. He sent him to begin with. Number two, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again. That's our text here today. So that's kind of the second step. The third one is John 10 and 29. After we have been born again, after we have new life, my Father who has given them to me, that's my sheep, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. So we're safe and secure 
in God the Father's hand. And then lastly, the Second Corinthians passage, 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So it's the almighty arm and power of God that will raise us in glorious resurrection and we will become incorruptible, immortal, and we shall be changed. You know, the work of God the Father is so prominent in the scriptures. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, and I kind of had to watch myself because I was getting totally sidetracked off the sermon, enjoying all of the passages that speak to us about the Father in John's Gospel. It's an amazing thing. And so these are just a few that I've highlighted. The work of God the Father through the Son in delivering to us such great and manifold blessings. Isn't that true that we should say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then on the next slide, there's actually three specific instances in the scriptures, and you can look these up if you wish, but these three uh, passages here are instances where these precise words are used. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, our passage says he's caused us to be born again. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says he's the father of mercies and God of all comfort. Comfort in affliction. And that's what Peter's trying to encourage these dispersed Christians. They're in suffering. They're in affliction. They're in persecution. And it's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ that is merciful and can give us great comfort. And then lastly, in Ephesians God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that particular passage goes on to explain that we're chosen in him from before the foundation of the world and we're adopted as sons. So uh, this just kind of further emphasizes the emphasis of the Father's work in our salvation. Then the next slide, bless the Lord, just to... Uh, finish this little section off. Um, Psalms are beautiful songs, if you like, sacred songs that magnify the Lord and give us much insight into what God has done. Psalm 96, somebody has said that this is a, a great missionary hymn, Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. As the sun rises and sets and shines on every land, so are all lands to delight in the glory of the sun. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I would say to you that salvation in many ways outshines creation. It outshines providence because it is the marvelous, expansive grace of God and the light that shines into our dark hearts and illuminates us. And surely we should sing to him. Psalm 96 goes on to say later in that chapter, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Someone has said worship is the Christian's highest occupation. And surely that is true. Psalm 103 that I mentioned at the bottom of this slide is, Um, A wonderful passage, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. You know, each of us should stir our hearts to bless the Lord. 
let's not neglect to meditate upon his greatness and his power. You know, that would change our perspective. We get so bogged down with all of the circumstances of life and the difficulties, and we forget to look up to one who has infinite power and is able to bless us, and we should bless his name. Sometime in the future, if the Lord doesn't come, we will enter the article of death. And then once we cross the river, we will behold the king in his beauty. There's a hymn that has been written. Uh, many of you would know this hymn, My Redeemer, Oh, What Beauties. In that lovely name appear, none but Jesus in his glories shall the honored title wear. And so preoccupation with the wonders and greatness of God will totally change our perspective. And I think that's why Peter emphasizes this right at the beginning of this verse. Bless, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the verse goes on to say, according to his great, great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So let's look just for a minute at great mercy. And I've, I've tried to put a couple of things up here that may hopefully stimulate your thinking a little bit. What is mercy? Really, mercy is compassion in action. Mercy is the outward manifestation of pity. And that's a wonderful truth. Some might say, well, grace and mercy are closely related. And yes, they are, but they're a little bit different. Grace meets our need with respect to guilt and our lost condition. Christ stepped in in grace and takes away the fault of sin through his sacrifice. But what does mercy do? It pays more attention to what the impact of this sin is. Sin causes immense suffering. And God, in his great mercy, he paid attention to those of us that were in misery. We were bound by Satan's captive chain, and the sins weighed us down. And we're reaping in our own selves the results of sin. And yet, God looked down in mercy. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the merciful. It doesn't just say mercy. It says great mercy. And I think that's wonderful. One of the best illustrations of mercy is, remember when the clever lawyer came to the Lord? And he said, who's my neighbor? Remember the Lord gave him the wonderful story we have of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Remember the man that left Jerusalem and went down to Jericho on the road and the robbers ambushed him and attacked him, injured him, left him half dead. And then we have two religious people come along, a priest and a Levite. And the priest comes by and he looks at this poor man in the ditch and he takes one look and he passes by on the other side. And then the Levite comes along. He's also a man in the service of God. He comes along, looks at him. He too passes by on the other side. But then a Samaritan comes along who really has very little to do with Jews. They don't even normally even speak to one another. He came along and what did he see? He saw a man there in great need. He saw a man suffering, bleeding, about to die. And his heart was moved with compassion and pity. That's true mercy. He gave him the best medical treatment he could give him, poured in oil and wine, the best medical treatments of the day. 
Not only that, but he got off his animal and he put the injured man on his animal and took him to an inn and said, I'll look after the cost, just look after this man, nurse him back to health. And if there's any additional charges, when I come back, I'll repay you. That's true mercy. And this is who our neighbor is. That Samaritan showed great compassion and made full provision for his recovery. And I was thinking about how that illustrates the wonders of what Jesus has done for us. He was moved with compassion. He saw us in our weakness, in our failure, and in our sin. And he was moved to die for us. And now we're in the great, living in the benefits of that great mercy. So the text says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Wonderful. What does born again mean? Well, this next slide tells you that uh, best as I could come up with something that was reasonable, I thought, was a complete change of heart and character which is produced in a person by the Holy Spirit when the person repents and believes in Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Being born again really is a new life beginning. We were born once naturally. We didn't have anything to do with it. We were just born. And you say, well, how do I know that I'm, excuse me, how do I know that I'm born? Well, I think you're breathing. (laughs) I think you're living. I think you're eating. You know that you have life. You were born physically. How do you know that you're born spiritually? I would say the same way. Do you have the life of God in your soul? Do you have an appetite for spiritual things? Do you love God? Do the things of Christ take on a new interest for you? That demonstrates new life. Being born again is the idea of one thought is regeneration or making anew. And uh, I was trying to think of some illustrations of this. Uh, There was a man walking in England in a farmer's field and he saw an old chassis laying in the ditch. It was an old rusted, there was weeds and trees all growing up through it. It was just obviously had been sitting there for many, many years. But this man was an expert on early Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost chassis. And he saw a spring sticking out of the mud with a particular set of clamps and bolts on it. He said, that is one of the earliest chassis that was ever built, probably around 1906. So he talked to the farmer. Farmer thought it was a piece of junk anyway. So he was quite easily able to acquire the chassis and that began a complete regeneration. That chassis was completely restored. And if you looked at it now, you would never realize it was once in a farmer's field as a derelict piece of equipment that was no longer fulfilling its purpose. That's an illustration to me of what God has done for us in salvation. What has he done? He's picked us up. We no longer fulfilled the purpose for which he created us and he's restored us. He's regenerated us, give us new life. And now we have a change of heart and character because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. I hope this puts a desire in your heart if you don't know Christ to trust him because he can give you a hope that is far larger and living and greater than you will ever have any other way. He will give you eternal life. One of the best illustrations of 
regeneration in the scripture, and you're probably going to say, I wonder which one he's going to choose. The one I'm going to choose is an Old Testament example. Remember Naaman, the captain of the host of Syria? Remember when he carried away captives out of the land of Israel? He carried away a little maid, and the little Jewish maid helped his wife look after the house. Naaman was a big man. Naaman was important, strong, but he had a problem. If he rolled up his shirt sleeve, Naaman had leprosy. And that was a devastating diagnosis and disease. The little maid, knowing this, said to her mistress, she said uh, to, the, to the lady of the house, she said, I wish he would go and see the prophet in Samaria because if he did, he would heal him of that leprosy. And Naaman took heed to this, went to his commanding officer and said, can I go? So they missed, of course, in some sense of misdirection. He gave him a wonderful big letter of introduction and sent it to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel was panicked. He said, who am I? Am I God to make alive and to kill? What am I going to do? I can't heal this man of his leprosy. But Elisha, the man of God, who was in that vicinity, heard of this. And he said, send him to me. Send him to me. So Naaman comes with great pomp, chariots loaded with money and all kinds of gifts, servants. And he comes to the door of Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even come down to see him. He just sends a messenger out. And he said, go dip in Jordan seven times. And if you do, your flesh will become the flesh, like the flesh of a little child. What would the Hollywood women give for that, huh? Flesh of a little child? when you have leprosy and something that serious? Naaman was furious. He said, aren't the rivers of Damascus where I live way cleaner than this dirty Jordan River? And I thought he would come out and he would put his hand over the place and he would say some nice things and acknowledge me. And then I would be cleansed, I would be healed. Naaman was furious. But you know, the servants of Naaman, after he had cooled down a little bit, they talked to him and they said, listen, Just think about this, Naaman. If he'd asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it. But he's asking you to do a very simple thing. Just go to the Jordan, dip seven times. Why don't you do it? So he did. Naaman went down to the river, and I could just sort of see in my mind this whole thing unfolding. And Naaman goes down seven times into the water. And when he comes out, to his great amazement, his leprosy is gone, and his flesh is just as if he's a young person again. My, what a transformation. What regenerating power. And Naaman was so happy. He went back to the man of God's house and he tried to give him a gift, but he wouldn't accept it. The story goes on. It's very interesting. But the, the, the point I'm trying to get across here is regeneration is a real thing. And once Christ comes into our hearts, we see and we recognize the wonders of what he's accomplished. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So the next slide on biblical perspectives about being born again, there's a a number of different expressions that relate to this topic. And don't worry, we're not going to go through all these. I'm just listing them here for your perusal. Um, The first one, passing from death to life. Have you ever thought about that? That is really strange. If you get an email or a text message or any other communication from somebody, the ones I've all got are, this person has passed. 
The event had gone from life to death. And sometimes it's a surprise, sometimes it's expected, but it's the natural course of events, right? This is the opposite. You're passing from death to life. How wonderful this is. Verily or truly, truly, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's regeneration. That's the new birth. And a number of these are listed here. We've talked about the new creation being regenerated, being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. These are all pictures of what the Lord Jesus has done for us, being born again, sins being forgiven. Remember um, when John the Baptist pointed out Jesus on the sh- on, at the baptismal river? He points him out and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So when we're born again, our sins are forgiven. I transfer my sins penalty to Jesus and he's taken my place and now I have the life of God within me. What a wonderful thing. So the verse goes on to say, according to his great mercy, has caused to be born again to three things. In this next slide, I've just tried to summarize the rest of the verse for you in very succinct terms. New life results in three things. A living hope, a secure inheritance, and ultimate salvation. That's point number three in your outline. New life results in these three things. So let's look at the next slide, at a living hope. A living hope. And I, I was thinking about this verse and pondering over it, and uh, some translations say lively hope. And I was wondering, why does it say living hope? Um, we don't normally express ourselves that way, a living hope. What is hope anyway? Well, hope is a desire for some future good in this context with the full expectation of obtaining it. Now, there are many hopes in life that fail us. (laughs) In fact, ultimately they fail at the grave. Death extinguishes these hopes and aspirations of a lifetime. Sometimes we accomplish some of them, sometimes we don't but not so this living hope. It's interesting in this verse, it's bookended by life. First of all, we're born again by the great mercy of God, so we have new life. And then because Jesus rose from the dead, the back end of it, we have life bookending the living hope. So we have a living hope, first of all, because we're born again, and secondly, our salvation is absolutely secure because of the resurrection. So I think that's a a wonderful thought. This living hope has life in it. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that now abides faith, hope, and love. Proverbs 13 has this to say, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire accomplished is a tree of life. Erwin McManus in his book, Soul Craving, states this, and I'll just read it to you. Hope is essential for our souls to thrive. If you don't believe you have a future worth living for, your spirit loses all hope, and your soul was not designed to live without hope. In fact, when we lose all hope, we lose all desire to live. As Christians, we were given hope when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave. No longer were our lives destined for hopelessness. 
we have the ultimate assurance that things are getting better. Our lives were redeemed from hopelessness, not just in heaven, but here on earth as well. So our hope is in God, the living hope. I think that's a wonderful thing. The second point that I outlined is a secure inheritance. And this is, this is an interesting comment. This secure inheritance. Um, you notice this verse describes what the inheritance is not. Things about it that don't happen. It doesn't really describe precisely what is the inheritance. And I think maybe that's a question we should ask ourselves. What is the inheritance? Well, besides being Christ himself and being with him, I think we need to expand our thinking a little bit. It's being a full beneficiary of the entire universe and all that God is. Hebrews 1 and 2 tells us that the Son has been appointed heir of all things. We as God's adopted children, we're co-heirs, and we share fully in the glory of Christ. And so our inheritance is everything that God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit have accomplished in the creation of this mighty and vast universe and everything that he will unfold to us in the future to come. I, I don't know about you, but I had some very strange thoughts when I was a really young Christian. I thought, well, do I, even before I became a Christian, I, I thought, well, do I really want to go to heaven? That'll be just like one never-ending church service that goes on and on and on. Well, you know, that's so far, that's so far removed from the realities of heaven because God is going to unfold to us in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, the vast glories which we can't even comprehend. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to ask him a few questions about how did you suspend the earth in space? What are all these other galaxies for? There's just so many things that God will unfold to us and reveal the glories of heaven. It makes us want to go there and see what Christ will do in that day. Revelation 21 uh, gives us a very brief description of the inheritance. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. God and man will dwell together. Everything will be made new. The wonderful city of jewels, the new Jerusalem, will be our residence. The river of life will issue from God's throne. The healing tree of life with 12 kinds of fruits will grow there too. And there'll be no night there because the eternal light of the Lamb will fill the new heaven and the new earth and shine upon all the heirs of God. Certainly we say with the psalmist, the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, there's three characteristics given on this slide of the inheritance, and I don't want to uh, belabor the points too heavily, but I tried to summarize the way I looked at it. In substance, it's incorruptible. In other words, it can't be destroyed. It's indestructible. In purity, it's undefiled. There's nothing there to mar or um, bring in uh, impurities or pollution. And in beauty... It's unfading, imperishable, indestructible. The substance of everything here upon earth, just think about this, passes away by degrees. Even granite 
will rot and crumble over the years. Have you ever seen a tombstone that's been deeply engraved back from the late 1800s? In some of these tombstones, you can hardly read the inscription because the impact of weather and air and light has slowly eroded what men wrote upon that stone. Empires, dynasties, and thrones have tottered by internal corruption, but the inheritance of the saints of God has nothing within it to make it perish. It's an interesting note, too, that when we are raised, we are going to be raised incorruptible. We're raised immortal. And nothing will destroy what God will make us in that day. No corruption or decay. And purity, there's no sin there. No pollution, no stain. The same word of, is used as in this verse, as of Christ. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's unstained. In other words, absolutely pure. Wouldn't it be nice to be in that place where everything is perfect? We no longer have wrong thoughts of one another, perhaps misjudging somebody's motives as to why something's happening the way it is. It will be a place where there'll be no sin, no flaw. If you take an eye loop, um, I'm sure some of you have used these the times 10 magnifiers, and then you can actually go to higher power uh, glasses with the uh, microscope. If you take even a flawless, what you think is a flawless diamond, and you start magnifying it times 100, times 200, all of a sudden you begin to see flaws. There are imperfections embedded that is not obvious to us with just normal vision. There's no flaw in heaven. We are with the lamb in his perfection and it's absolutely pure. In beauty, it's unfading. Have you ever seen a beautiful flower? You know, sometimes they're just so wonderful. You think, if I could just preserve that. But give it a few days and the radiance of the flower begins to diminish. And the beauty passes away. Not the case in heaven. The beautiful flower remains pristine and the priceless, unspeakable beauty we will enjoy forever and ever. What an inheritance we have in Christ. Beloved, think forward to the time when this will be your portion. In spite of all the trials and troubles here right now, there is a heaven of glory awaiting us with these kinds of characteristics that should make us rejoice in God. The next slide is the third item that I mentioned in my opening about ultimate salvation. Now, the reason I have sort of put on this slide these three things is just to clarify, sometimes when we read the word salvation in the Bible, it's not always speaking of our conversion. Um, And I tried to put down the three different aspects of salvation. First of all, point A, we first of all were born again. In other words, we put saving faith in Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. And eight, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's the initial saving faith that gives us new life. But then there's another aspect to salvation, which is what people call with this big word sanctification, is as we live our Christian life, we're in a polluted environment and sin affects us. And sometimes we sin. So we need forgiveness from God and the daily salvation from the power of sin. 
That's what's referred to in Romans chapter 6. And then what's referred to in this passage that we're looking at today is the ultimate salvation from the presence of sin at the rapture. Hebrews 9 and 28. The curse is going to be removed. No longer will there be any bad influences to defile the Christian. We will be transformed and changed and our salvation will be complete. We'll be transported out of this scene into the heavenly realm. And he's caused us to be born again to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Christian, the future is bright. And God works for us in these three different ways, three different aspects of salvation to bring us to glory. The next slide is, I'd like to just emphasize that last phrase of this verse, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. In other words, kept by the power of God. I think this is a a really encouraging thing. The Christian is being guarded or fortified by God himself. And the promise, the instrument through which he does that is our faith. That's how he preserves us. And faith with the help of God within us is a sovereign preservative of the soul. It's the instrument of his keeping power. Just to go back to Peter again for a moment. Remember Peter, we often think of his failure when he denied the Lord. Remember prior to that happening, just prior, uh, when Peter was making these great declarations of promising to follow Christ no matter what? What did the Lord say to him? He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. After Peter's denial of the Lord, he wept bitterly. Tears of repentance. And in John 21, the risen Christ restores Peter and his faith shines all the brighter. Why? Why is this? Because someone was guarding Peter. It was the Lord himself that said, I prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. You know how much we need the preserving power of God in our lives. There is the aspect where Christians are responsible to nurture their faith. Yes, that's in other passages. But in this passage, he's emphasizing that that power is there within you through the faith that God has given you to preserve you to this ultimate inheritance. And that's what Peter is trying to emphasize. And so in verse six, which they'll cover next week, is it says, how does, what does it say in verse six and it starts? In this, we greatly rejoice. My, this should make our hearts rise in thankfulness as we think of the bright future that's ahead of all of us. And I certainly hope that uh, some of the thoughts that have been expressed this morning would encourage you as you think about the wonderful future ahead of us. There was a Scottish Presbyterian preacher lived in the 1600s. In fact, he was born in 1600, died in 1661. His name was Samuel Rutherford. He was buried in Westminster Abbey and he was saved in 1624. So we're talking 400 years ago. And this man was a wonderful, saved Christian that preached faithfully. Uh, He got himself into some difficulties because he was the one that said the king is not omnipotent. 
There is one far higher than he. He is there at the pleasure of God Almighty, and it is God that we serve. He kept a diary and wrote many wonderful things. As he got to be an old man, he wrote the hymn, or he didn't write the hymn, he wrote the words which led to the hymn, which another lady then picked up and put music to, which is Emmanuel's land. And I think uh, many of you would have uh, be familiar with that, that hymn. And if you look up a hymnal, again, songs of praise, um, you'll see a few verses, maybe six, seven even. But that's just a portion of what he wrote. And there were many different verses that he wrote And I thought what I would do is just read three of them by way of closing uh, our service today. So if you could stand with me for a moment. We'll read these verses and then I'll pray. So Anne Cousins uh, was the name of the lady that decided to take these words and put them into poetry and then there was music put to that poetry. And this is what this old man says as... He approaches the end of life. We're thinking even in our Sunday night series about finishing well. Well, this man was uh, determined to finish well and to put these thoughts together. And this is what he said. There the red rose of Sharon, speaking of heaven, unfolds its heartmost bloom and fills the air of heaven with ravishing perfume. Oh, to behold it blossom, while by its fragrance fanned, where glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I've wrestled on towards heaven, Against storm and wind and tide, now like a weary traveler that leaneth on his guide. Amid the shades of evening, while sinks life's lingering sand, I hail the glory dawning in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Father, we come into your holy presence today. We are thankful for the mighty words of scripture that encourage us, even as we think about our failures and faults here upon the earth, our Christian pathway is marked by ups and downs, and we come into periods of suffering and affliction. And yet, as Peter tells us, there is a bright, glorious, and wonderful inheritance that is ahead of us. Help us, O Lord, uh, to see this with spiritual eyes, that by the eyes of faith, we might Behold the Lamb in his glory. And truly as this, uh, uh, these verses of poetry tell us, that we should look forward to the day when we will be in Emmanuel's land. Help us, O Lord, we pray, and we dismiss us with your blessing. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.